He was about my own height, just under six feet, and at first sight rather slightly built, but a hefty enough fellow to eyes which knew where to look for points of a man's strength. Still, he appeared slim, and therefore young, and you could see from the way he stood and walked that he was as light on his feet as a rope dancer. There is a horrible word in the newspapers, well-groomed, applied to men by lady journalists, which always makes me think of a glossy horse on which the stable boy has been busy with the brush and curry comb. I had thought of him as well-groomed, but there was nothing glossy about his appearance. He wore a rather well-cut brown tweed suit with a soft shirt and collar and a russet tie that matched his complexion. His get-up was exactly that of a country squire who has come up to town for a day at Tattersall's. A warm welcome back to John Buchan Unbound. I'm Michael Redley, a historian interested in John Buchan and in the first half of the 20th century in which he lived. Our opener for this episode is from Buchan's great post-war thriller, The Three Hostages, where the hero, Richard Hannay, is describing the moment when he first clapped eyes on the villain of the story, Dominic Medina. All perfectly normal, you may think. Today, we're going to focus on The Three Hostages, and as we'll see shortly, Dominic Medina is far from normal. This is episode four in our series addressing John Buchan and the First World War. Hello, everybody. I'm Ursula Buchan, granddaughter of John Buchan. I am his most recent biographer. My book, Beyond the 39 Steps, came out in 2019 and is, as they say, available in all good bookshops. In these episodes of John Buchan Unbound, supported by the John Buchan Society, Michael and I are exploring the part played by him in The Great War and its aftermath through the lens of his Hanny novels and his memoirs. So now onto the aftermath of the war. We've dealt already in the last three episodes with his three novels related directly to the conflict. The 39 Steps, set just before the outbreak of war, Green Mantle in 1915-16 as the war on the Western Front assumed its deadly attritional form, and Mr. Stanfast reflecting the war weariness on all sides in 1917-18. This time, it's the fourth Hannay novel, The Three Hostages, which appeared five years after the end of the First World War, and here we see not the war itself, but the consequences of the war, to which The Three Hostages holds up a mirror. As keen listeners will remember, Richard Hannay, its central figure, had newly arrived from South Africa in 1914 at the start of The 39 Steps. In The Three Hostages, his character is essentially the same as in the previous novels. He's a Stolid man, shy with the opposite sex, schooled only in the University of Life, but, as our opener shows, highly observant. He also has unlikely talents, both for assuming disguises and for intuitive problem-solving, which the powers that be put to good use to solve riddles and unravel dastardly plots intended to undermine the nation. Indeed. But we should also note an important change, because the novel shows Hannay thoroughly assimilated into Britain's post-war society. He is, in a way, the epitome of many talented figures drawn to Britain in Edwardian times from what is sometimes now called 
the Anglosphere, the English-speaking world, you could say, who played a leading part in Britain's public life between the wars. They include, for example, Andrew Bonhomor, the leader of the Conservative Party to which Buchan belonged, and Max Aitken, Lord Beaverbrook, the press owner, who was Buchan's boss in the Ministry of Information in the last year of the war. And both Law and Aitken were Canadians, but there were Americans and South Africans also, weren't there, Ursula? Yes, yes, they also played key roles, and they are represented in Buchan's fiction, respectively by the mining engineer originally from Indiana, John Scantleberry Blencarn, and Hanny's close friend, the professional big game hunter who had fought with the Boers, Peter Pienaar. Let's first sketch out the background to the book and the part played in Buchan's life by the book. It was published to huge acclaim in Britain and at the same time in the United States in the middle of 1924. And what we need to help us explain The Three Hostages is a picture of the world after the war, which, as we all know, ended with the armistice in early November 1918. And this is your speciality, Michael, isn't it? (laughs) Well, let let me have a go. Despite the hopes and expectations of many people, the world did not settle back after the war into its old pre-war patterns. How could it? Let's face it. How could yeah, it? I mean, what one of the things what was 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 a, a, a very progressive development: the sudden threefold extension of the franchise in Britain, which came with the general election right at the end of 1918, immediately after the war ended. And for the first time then, enormous numbers of working-class people, men and women, from all over Britain, including Ireland, could vote. But the scale, the scale of the, of the dislocation brought about, caused by the war, economic and social, was vast. And as the war ended, there was also a vicious and brutal civil war spreading across Ireland, and spilling out into mainland Britain as a reminder, in a way, of, of, of close to home of just how dislocated the world had become. Yes, it, it was a real mess, wasn't it? And the interesting question for us, of course, is how did Buchan view all this? He took a dim view of the way post-war coalition government set out to tackle it. In particular, he was he was absolutely horrified at the way it sought to limit the influence of ordinary people, not least by blocking the participation of the Labour Party at Westminster. So much so that he withdrew his candidacy for a parliamentary seat before the election at the end of 1918, and he wrote very critically later of the way post-war politics had been conducted. He'd also, though, been changed himself personally oh, yeah. by the by the war. Hugely, yeah. His his view had been enlarged by the part he'd played, so that he was now concerned less, in a way, with politics, who was out, who was in, and so on, and more with big movements which shaped ideas and popular thinking, political parties, pressure groups, and adult education. And he explained to friends who knew of his pre-war ambitions that he was no longer interested, frankly, in a political career. Although you've got to admit, Michael, he did change his mind about that later in the 1920s, didn't he? Well, did he really? I mean, you could say, you could ask yourself the question, I think quite quite reasonably, about whether he wanted to be an MP. Certainly, he changed his mind. 
but about what to do when he got there. Yeah, maybe, well, maybe not. Matter. Maybe not. No, you're right. But so, so certainly at the time we're talking about, his energies were fully committed to what now seemed to him more important. And you can definitely see this change, can't you, on a personal level. At the end of the First World War, he and his wife, Susan, and their young daughter and three sons, they moved from London to a house in the village of Ellsfield, yes. three, three miles yep. from Oxford, which had a distant view of the famous dreaming spires of the city. Yes. And on that ridge, it's a wonderful place to go to, the pe people who know it, the, the country setting appealed to the Buckens for itself. Yeah, but there was also there was also, of course, five miles away in 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 the city of Oxford, from that point, a fast train connection to London, so that Buchan could return to his work with the publisher Thomas Nelson and Sons, who with whom, as we as we said, he was he he was working before the war, and and it was and it was settled into Ellsfield, and commuting into London as well that he embarked on a large-scale project to memorialise the war with Nelson as the publisher. And its centrepiece of his effort to memorialise, along with lots of other volumes, of course, on different facets of the war indeed, was a massive narrative account of the global conflict in four volumes, four very portentous-looking volumes, A History of the Great War, it was collectively known as, uh, a revision of his wartime Nelson's history, which we've mentioned in previous episodes, but represented for the post-war world. And it looks very good on a bookshelf, I must say. A beautiful it, edition. It does. Yeah. <laughs> but, but what always amazes me is that at the same time, for light relief, he somehow found time to write new fiction. Brilliant stories featuring historical characters uh, the Blanket of the Dark and Midwinter come to mind, as well as a novel with lively contemporary themes called Hunting Tower, whose hero is a romantic, retired Glaswegian grocer called Dixon McCann, who, who then goes on to feature in a, in a couple of sequels. So he's incredibly busy at Hellsfield. Yes. I mean, one, of, one of my personal favourites, I'd I, I just like to mention as a historian, is called The Path of the King, a magnificent yes. series of short stories over uh, over 2,000 years, so picking up particular points in time. It's a wonderful, wonderful... Yes, I mean, it's sort of written for teenagers, but but I, I absolutely love it. I think it's brilliant. Very, very good. Let's kind of summarise in a way, because I think we can say that Buchan settled in the post-war period to the life of a writer with a propagandist's interest in the contemporary world. And early in 1922, he completed... A History of the Great War, as we said, and he wrote in it, Laus Deo, the Lord's name be praised. It was plainly a great relief, and in a way, for him, the turning of a page of his own life. On that final manuscript, as he sent it off to the publisher, it was the culmination for him of nearly 10 years continuously living with and working with and focused on the war. So it was, a, it was a great moment, a great sort of moment for something new to happen. So what would Buchan do next? Take a break from your detective work, Buchan fans, because we've got something exciting to share with you. John Buchan was an important figure in the first half of the 20th century. 
a well-connected politician and statesman, an admired historian, as well as an incredibly successful novelist. If this podcast makes you want to know more, the John Buchan Society, which supports John Buchan Unbound, is inviting you to join the great adventure. The Society has been pioneering the study of John Buchan for more than 40 years, hosting friendly and lively meetings and seminars, and producing a journal reporting research into the many different aspects of this diverse amazing man. And if you happen to find yourself dramatically hanging out of a train and passing peebles in Scotland, check out the John Buchan Story Museum, where you can find everything you would want to learn about the man and his books. So, to hear more about the Society and join in the adventure, visit www.johnbuchansociety.co.uk and become part of Buchan's story yourself. Now, let's get back to the action. Welcome back. We've been exploring the fourth of Buchan's Richard Hannay novels, set quite soon after the First World War. He was, by this time, a hugely successful novelist, so he was free to move in any direction he liked. In the middle of 1922, he began to write The Three Hostages, about the effects of the war on the post-war world. It's time to outline the story, although, of course, we'll avoid the full spoiler experience because we would really like you to read the book. Indeed. I'll start off, shall I? Yes, please do. Please do. The war has been over for a few years, and Richard Hannay is happily settled on his farm, Foss Manor in the Cotswolds. As foreshadowed in Mr Stanfast, he has married Mary Lamington, and their son Peter John is the apple of their eye. The local doctor, name of Greenslade, drops by and explains how unsettled his patients still are by the effects of the war, which has brought the unconscious mind closer to the surface of everyday life. In the course of their conversation, he happens to explain how thriller novels are written. I want to write a shocker, so I begin by fixing on one or two facts which have no sort of obvious connection. Let us take three things a long way apart. He paused for a second to consider. Say... An old blind woman spinning in the Western Highlands, a barn in a Norwegian theatre, and a curiosity shop in North London, kept by a Jew with a dyed beard. Not much connection between the three. You invent a connection. Simple enough if you have any imagination. The reader doesn't realise that the author fixed upon the solution first, and then invented the problem to suit it. <laughs> yes, and, and, and am I writing... In, in remembering that in your biography, you suggested, didn't you, that this was how Buchan had actually plotted his own successful shockers. Absolutely. Yes, as Greenslade tells Hannay, the writer writes inductively while the reader reads deductively. I imagine it's the way most thriller writers actually do it. Yeah, it seems very likely. But, but in Buchan's story, there is an immediate twist in the first couple of chapters which is one of my own favourite moments. Three young people, children of rich and eminent figures in society, have been abducted, abducted without leaving a trace. The only clue is a doggerel rhyme. And when Hannay's wartime associates summon him back to unravel it, he suddenly realises that the rhyme refers to the same collection of apparently unconnected events his doctor friend had cited as as part of his example of how to write a thriller. Yes, and it really puzzles Hanny, not surprisingly, 
But the doctor searches his own subconscious, and with the help of a popular hymn tune and a broken pipe stem acting as triggers, he identifies the source, a young and dashing figure, a rising star in the social and political firmament, called Dominic Medina. Aha, so the game is on. One can point to real people on whom Buchan's fictional characters might have been based. Medina, for example, has obvious elements of the young, conservative and then Labour politician Oswald Mosley, a clubbable, politically unprincipled, rising in politics at the time, attracting the female vote with his good looks, spoken of as a future prime minister and a master of propaganda. And you're talking, of course, of the later founder of the British Union of Fascists. Yes. Much yes. feared by reasonable people at the time, obviously. Yes, I am. And Hannay's police contact is another r real person to whom you can suggest that Buchan's fictional characters were, were based on. Um, the police contact McGillivray, who brings to mind Basil Thompson, Director of Intelligence at the Home Office, a real figure who, like Buchan, actually wrote thrillers and detective novels for the general public off the back of his war work. But contemporary readers will also have been intrigued by more immediate reflections of post-war life, won't they? An awareness yeah. of the loosening of social bonds in the jazz age and fears of social disruption is represented in the novel by the children of the ruling elite who've been taken as hostages. That alone would be enough to put the fear of God up the respectable classes. Yeah. Then there is Medina himself, accepted by society and evidently destined for high things, and yet a phony through and through. The Czechs of pre-war convention, uh, a small political community basically run by a few families, and high society dominated by landed interests, all that has been swept away by the war. And in the resulting vacuum, a man adept at inventing his own backstory like Medina could plausibly aspire to rise to the pinnacle of society and politics. Yeah, absolutely so. And there is something here again, though, isn't there, about the world as a cosmic battleground between good and evil, something we'd noticed in the earlier novels also, I think. Yeah, definitely. Buchan understood that evil could be really attractive, which is what made it so dangerous. Dominic Medina and Andrew Lumley in, in an earlier novel, The Powerhouse, are both evil and amoral, but they are also thoroughly integrated establishment figures, so their wickedness is hiding, so to speak, in plain sight. As it were, the devil having the best tunes, I suppose, isn't yes, it, really? definitely. <laughs> and in a society which was still class stratified, these sorts of characters could really unsettle Buchan's readership. I know you don't agree with me about this, Michael, but I still think that making up these villains was an act of subversion by Buchan since although he was always keen to present himself as an author for everybody, he was in the establishment swim and he knew an awful lot of influential people. I suppose the, the difficulty I, I have with that is, is, that, is, is, the, is the balance that we always have in these things between, as it were, a, a, a deeper explanation of some kind and, and the obvious truth that he needed villains to be his butt of, 
of, of the story, and he but, made. But his villains, his villains, are, are, are not sort of East End gangsters, are they? They are no. establishment figures who everybody yeah. thinks is absolutely marvelous. They, they, that's they are, what makes they, them so dangerous. They are people that he that that that, that he 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 modeled, he modeled his villains on on people he could have he, he could he could claim acquaintance with. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. And, but does that mean he they they are in some way pastiches of of, of political figures in his own time? Perhaps, perhaps. I, I, I think it's a really interesting question. I just think he's having fun. Frankly. Yeah. Well, yeah. in that in that case, I that that I would agree with. Yes. <laughs> um, Buchan's particular twist on on the thing, though, is a very interesting development of, of this general theme because he's really suggesting something very fundamental arising out of the war that rationality has been seriously weakened in favour of intuition by, by the shock that the war has administered to people's psyches and that the power of suggestion is the up-and-coming means of influence. The conflicts of the future will apply mass psychology to shaping the popular will. Hypnotism is crucial to the story and Medina is identified as a master propagandist as well on a massive scale. The briefing... Hannay is given by the senior policeman McGillivray, who we've already mentioned, acknowledges that propaganda, first deployed on a mass scale during the First World War, is a new and potentially dangerous force loose in the post-war world as well. Let me quote briefly from what McGillivray says to Hannay. Dick, have you ever considered what a diabolical weapon propaganda can be? using all the channels of modern publicity to poison and warp men's minds, it's the most dangerous thing on earth. You can use it cleanly, as I think on the whole we did in the war, but you can also use it to establish the most damnable lies. Happily, in the long run it defeats itself, but only after it has sown the world with mischief. Whenever I read this, I wonder how just how much McGillivray will have never found out about propaganda because it was so beneath the radar. But his creator knew a great deal, of course, and it was a subject about which he thought a great deal more deeply than most people. Anyway, back to the story. Another key element is the contemporary situation in Ireland. Medina is identified as of Irish background, and his mother, who's a scary figure with powers of hypnotism, is the blind spinner in the doggerel verse and it reminds him of his duty to his heritage. The underlying driving force for Medina turns out to be a passion for revenge. Hanni sees that his master plan goes well beyond mere criminality. His extortion rackets and his kidnapping, etc., are simply the means to support the opulent lifestyle designed to propel him to political power. According to Hanni's friend Sandy Arbuthnot, Medina wants to be the ruler of what is most strange to him, what he hates, and in an unwilling, bitter way, admires. So he aims at conquering the very heart, the very soundest part of our society. I think that's a, a, a tremendous sort of mo moment in the story where we, we really get to the bottom of what this Medina character is all about in the context that Button gives him in the story. It, it's, it's a fabulous thing. And the Irish Republican uprising within Ireland, uh, spilling over to the mainland of Britain, had shown in a direct and frightening way how ordinary life 
was altered by the war and that there was really no way back to the comfortable imperial order which had existed before. Ireland got close to home rule before the war, although many will have forgotten that by the, uh, in the post-war period, although the Easter Rising of 1916 won't have been forgotten perhaps quite so readily, would have had a more lasting effect. Certainly, yeah, that's quite right. And there's another point we should make, surely. As we've come to expect, Hanny's old friends lend a hand, principally in this case, Sandy Arbuthnot and Archie Roylands, from Greenmantle and Mr. Standfast, respectively. Sandy is a member of a dining club of war heroes who tell one another tales of daring do. It's called the Thursday Club, to which Medina, who is also a member, at one point invites Hanny. The effect of the writer buttressing Hanny's efforts in this way is to offer the reassurance to the reader that in a shifting world there is still a network of solid people with their roots firmly in that comfortable past, able to hold at bay the threatening tide of chaotic modernity. But Medina's membership at the Thursday Club will also have made readers fearful for Hanny's safety. Yeah. And 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 the three hostages is is also of course is concerned with thoroughly kind of worldly things, isn't it? Fame, reputation, money, and so on. But there's also, as we've noted in the previous novels, a grounding in eternal verities. Yeah, well, certainly. Well, that's John Buchan all over, isn't it? Hanny discovers that Medina is not just profoundly evil, but has the fatal flaw of evil people, namely what. Buckham would call spiritual pride, which he understands as Medina, as Hanny understands as Medina's inability to see himself as a mortal under the eye of the Almighty. Yeah, and and uh, and, and the the story is riddled with with extraordinary coincidences and unlikely events of all kinds. <laughs> yeah, that's but, quite. But 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 the but the way that this works in the way the story is told is that the powers of good are repeatedly saved by the fact that Medina is blind. He cannot see that Hane is immune to his hypnotic powers. So preoccupied with himself and revelling in his own godlike powers, Medina thinks he's invulnerable. Indeed. And, and, that, yeah. and that carries the story forward in many ways. He's as blind as his mother, in fact, isn't he? Um, in a way, yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Throughout the story, there are intriguing reflections on contemporary society, as you would expect, obviously. Um, yeah. For example, in the first few pages, you see the kind of hierarchical dom domesticity in the home life of Hanny, his wife, and their servants. Frankly, very like the author's orderly, pleasant life at Elsfield, where the household revolved around him. Yeah. And there's also a, a, the tenant of a Scottish deer forest, where the final action takes place, is Lord Claybody. And he's a Midlands manufacturer who made his fortune and got his title as a result of war work. And he wants to call himself Lord Oxford because he has a son at one of the colleges. I don't blame him, really. But anyway, that's a caricature of the kind of crass figure who made their way into the altered society after the war. Another sign of the times is surely the role given in the novel to Mary, Richard Hannay's wife. Um, don't you think, Ursula, it certainly strikes me that way? Yeah, we, we needed to come to her, actually, because she's really important. Um, as in Mr. Standfast, she seized into the heart of the matter more clearly 
and more cleverly than her, than her husband. And she plays a part that could simply not have been imagined in mainstream fiction before the war. Times have changed. That said, the final contest between Hanny and Medina is one of physical force, the game, played out by men, which women can only observe, li literally in this case, from a distance, <laughs> through a yes. telescope. Yeah, it's an extraordinary thing, that actually is a feature of the story. And there we have it. A hero created in Buchan's fiction out of the war goes on to be his means for exploring the contemporary world in peacetime. At the start of the novel, Hannay deeply resents being dragged out of his rural retreat, uh, Foss Manor, to help solve the nation's problems again. <laughs> uh, and and when we when we have a look at the way the war features in his own memoirs, Buchan's own memoirs, Memory Hold the Door, we, we find that Buchan himself had a very similar attitude to public life after the war. We'll be exploring this further in the next and final episode of this series. All this talk of the deeper background shouldn't distract us from just how clever a piece of storytelling The Three Hostages is. It's full of well-drawn characters. It's a, it's a thrilling thriller with the usual <laughs> apparatus of intriguing random clues. It also makes especially good use of the reveal. But in 2023, a trigger warning may be necessary. In the Hannay novels we have covered, the reader very occasionally comes across a sentence that no writer in the 21st century would put into the mouth of a fictional character for sensitivities over language have obviously changed over the intervening hundred years. I have no doubt that Buchan, were he writing today, would be just as sensitive to language as any other contemporary writer. And, and the book was, as we said earlier, immensely popular in its own time. It sold 40,000 copies in the first six months after it appeared in Britain, and in the hands of a new American publisher, Houghton Mifflin, uh, it sold nearly 20,000 in the United States over the same period. It was always among Buckland's bestsellers, no doubt due in part to it being another Richard Hannay. But putting psychology to the forefront gave it a contemporary twist, didn't it? We know yeah. that Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock wanted to make the book into a companion piece, for his film version of The 39 mm. Steps. Yeah. However, one difficulty seems to have been how to make hypnotism work on the screen. No all those, of, all all those, those gold, spinning, spinning gold All watches. those spinning discs, yes. <laughs> yeah. Very tricky problem. Yeah. But Hitchcock's interest shows just how up to the minute The Three Hostages was thought to be. I absolutely agree. I mean, it is a great story. It's wonderfully told, but I hope we've also shown that it reflects fascinating things about Buchan, showing again, in a way, just what an interesting man he was. His own disenchantment with politics, for example, after the First World War, which you'd never imagine, his engagement with the deep problems of the post-war world, and his continuing interest in propaganda, inherited from his war work, but revealed to have new and potentially dangerous applications in the post-war world. Above all, perhaps, the novel reveals Buchan not as the backward-looking figure, the so-called last of the Victorians, as an American critic once called him, or the stereotypical holder of regressive views, anti-Semitism, misogyny, general paranoia, 
as is still sometimes wrongly suggested in modern histories, but someone actually with progressive ideas, his finger on the contemporary pulse, and with an eye to the future. Do join us, please, for the next episode in the series, the last for this season when we consider the Great War in Buchan's autobiography, Memory Hold the Door. We we hope you've enjoyed this one, and we look forward to you joining us again for our exploration of Buchan's reflections at the end of his life on the Great War, the part he had played in it, and the part it had played in his own time. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.